All right, I'm here to get some screening audio. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Laura. This is like the photograph up through the screen. Oh my god. All right. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. And now can you do Welcome to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast? Okay. Welcome to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast? Yes. Okay. <laughs> the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Well, welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I am here, um, as of about four hours ago, in Fredericton, New Brunswick, but only here for about eight more hours. But I am joined, as I am every fortnight or so, by Ken Holyoke in Leftbridge, Alberta. How are you? Not too bad. I'm uh, I'm doing well, and and uh, it is still it is still Gabe Reinick in Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, uh, and I, I'm seeing two faces on the other side of the Zoom call tonight, um, and we right, are joined. Yeah by your colleague and collaborator in Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, Dr. Arthur Anderson. Good evening, Arthur. Welcome to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast for the second time, our first repeat guest on the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. This time I'm even not uh, being recorded in a bar at an archaeology conference. So. That's true. Thank you for stunning sound quality. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah and, uh, and we, just the one Arthur, you're going to need to come in a little bit closer when you're talking. Sorry, stunning sound quality. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, so uh, so so we have the privilege of catching you guys in the brief moment between the uh, conclusion of your uh, of the UNB and uh, University of New England um, field school that just wrapped up in, I believe it's Sit Bay, Maine. That's right. And uh, and you guys are heading out on your new in your newly formed uh, CRM consulting company uh, to do uh, some contract work in Down East Maine. Is that my is that do I have that right? I, I'm sorry to report, Ken, that that is exactly correct. Yeah, <laughs> well timed. Um, well Gabe timed. informed me that between uh, uh, between us meeting up in Fredericton in about a week and a half, uh, he's got a CRM contract and a wedding to finish up here. So uh, exactly, not um, mine to be clear. Mine has already been squared away. My wedding, yeah. that is. my CRM so, contract yeah. has not. Bad news. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and for the listener, tonight's episode is going to be. Well, we're going to have a brief introduction here, and then uh, Gabe and Arthur have kindly recorded some content from the field. In fact, I, I think you might have seen a picture on Instagram uh with uh with Gabe actually bringing the the Yeti microphone out into the uh the wilds of of uh, down east Maine that's right um, we call that a mobile studio I think yeah the rusticating archaeologist uh but with uh high technology exactly I, I felt a little bit like Joe Rogan with the ball cap and the earphones out there <laughs> but then I mean it's one of those things like when you're teaching a field school sometimes there can be so much commotion that you're actually not recording the podcast but you just uh throw the earphones on over your ears and pretend that you're uh, hold, hold on a second i'm checking the sound quality <laughs> so uh so yeah so we're gonna have a short uh short uh, intro here um and uh and then we're gonna recap your guys uh the field school stuff and then uh then the listener will be treated to a few uh 
a few interviews and uh, vignettes, I think, from the field. Um, and uh, after that, uh, we would want to a little programming note. Um, we will we will be on our probably our longest hiatus of of the uh, of the entire podcast history so far. Um, probably be offline until late August, maybe even early September. Um, and so uh, you'll have to go back through the catalog, um, fill out your bingo card, um, and get working on uh, winning one of those lovely Eco4 prizes, which uh, which I believe Gabe has an update on. Uh, I do not, Ken, have an update oh. on that. We unfortunately, uh, <laughs> so Ken and I have become alarmed that that people are just not. I, I think they're catching up with their bingo cards. I informed the students in the field that actually live Gabe Reinick also counted for a bingo card if that was something they wanted. Um, <laughs> so, so they wanted to fill in their bingo card from that. That was okay. Um, but the listeners should recall that the way this works is you fill in a bingo card, you send it in, and then you'll be entered in for a drawing that's been provided by our friends at Eco4 that includes things like um, a special Eco4 backpack, um, an Eco4 camouflage baseball hat, two non-camouflage hats that you can see. And in addition to that, I believe the the really the, the coup de grace of, of uh, podcast prizes, which is the customized Eco4 Marshalltown. There are two of those. And we'll parcel those up into, I think, three um, gift packets, and we will uh, send them your way uh, if you're the lucky winner. But you need to send us um, a, uh, a filled-in bingo card either to our Instagram or to our email address. Which What is our email address, Ken? It is New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, at gmail.com. And that's New Brunswick Archaeology, and archaeology spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. That's right. And another reason the listener might use that email address is that uh, the savvy listener, the listener who's been listening um, to us for some time now, will notice that we still do not have a new name for this podcast. We're still using the somewhat mundane name of the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, even though the scope of this show is more expansive than that, of course, as is the, um, you know, the time depth. And, and we've, we've, of course, merged into cultural criticism and, and so forth. And, um, and so to try to encourage the listener, uh, or to to help us come up with a new name, uh, we uh, have a variety of prizes. We really just have uh, the prizes change frequently for what you'll get if you are the lucky listener who teaches us the new name for this podcast. And this week we have a special. That's right, a very special um, option, and that is we're joined by Arthur Anderson. And one of the things that we do and have learned in the Down East Maine Archaeological um, Field School is that uh, Arthur Anderson. Uh, has, uh, I believe, what the students uh, would describe as a certain main dad energy, and that is that Arthur Anderson can produce a lobster <laughs> dinner for a number of your friends, uh, any number really up to 60, uh, and he does this uh, in a manner that, uh, that one can only describe as rustic. And so, so the way this works, friends, all you have to do, you provide the seaweed. So we need five buckets of seaweed and a large roaring fire, preferably over rocks, Arthur Anderson swoops in, and actually, because it's a prize read, he does it in a bit of a it's a, it's a bit of a fashion statement. Uh, straw boater, um, it's sort of a 1912 motif. Rolls in straw boater, uh, suspenders, white shirt, the whole nine yards. No lobster gets on anything. It's miraculous, except you, dear listener, and into your tummy. And what like he a does, Vin Diesel shirt, it, it, it just it never gets dirty. <laughs> it's exactly like a Vin Diesel shirt, but older. And um, and he shows up with. Uh, with 50 of them. And one of the great perks of this is that at no point during the evening will he call them 
lobsters. He calls them bugs. It makes it very authentic. <laughs> and, uh, he's even got chicken lobsters for our friend Ken Holyoke here. Who, uh, Cannas. Who, yeah, Cannas. Sorry, yeah, Cannas. <laughs> and uh, and he does that. Uh, he he um he prepares a, a series of of, uh, of steamer clams. And this will, of course, be, be, again, scope to your group size. It needs to be at least 20 people, but it can go up to 60. Scope to your group size. Uh, a small pasta salad on the side for garnish. And in addition to that, a gigantic Griswold pan simmering, that's right, simmering with hot butter. So, listener, if this sounds fun to you, that's not all. To wrap it up, we have strawberry shortcakes, hand-whipped. That's uh, Well, I, I say hand-whipped, but... He's got this sort of hand crank operation and it spins the two little uh, two little whiskers on the end. He throws an apron on for this part um, because the shirt is only immune to the lobster juices. <laughs> and then and then he feeds you that as well. So that's right. It's going to be a lobster dinner for you and up to 60, but no fewer than 20 of your dearest friends, uh, complete with uh, steamer clams and with strawberry shortcakes. And that's available to the listener who sends in the winning name for the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. And where would they send that, Ken? New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. That's fantastic. And what else is in that email right now, Ken? Uh, so we just have one listener letter this week. Um, our frequent uh, 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 frequent correspondence from David Black. Um, he That's says it. he's actually fallen behind on his correspondence. The truth is you overwhelmed me with your prodigious podcast output in June, <laughs> and I've only now caught up with it. As always, I enjoyed it immensely. Well, I've given you. your search for a podcast name some thought, but have no concrete suggestions. It seems to me you need something with the evocative simplicity of someone before us or underground New Brunswick, but with a bit more okay. edge. I'll keep pondering this. I'm pleased to hear you're planning a second season. I'm already looking forward to your proposed episode on pseudo-archaeology. Is a review of the Oak Island TV show a possibility there? Well, David Black, you, you have, uh, <laughs> you've, you've uh, definitely guessed that correctly. May I suggest a couple of other possibilities for topical episodes? Uh, one is a relationship between avocational and professional archaeologists. Oh, that's a good one. Right. That is a good one. Play. And another one is a relationship between academic and CRM archaeology, mm -hmm. both sensitive issues in New Brunswick. And that's correct. And we do actually have a couple of CRM-themed episodes planned out for next uh, next season. Um, and so I think we will be able to wet your whistle on uh, on those suggestions, Dave. Um, he wishes us all well with the fieldwork endeavors. Uh, I, I, I'm I get, that's probably more targeted at Gabe. I'm not doing fieldwork this summer. Um, and I hope that you've been able to get your dongles iced during the current heat wave. And uh, Dave, <laughs> yes, uh, I have had to take refuge inside. The dongles were overheating. Um, and uh but uh, but hopefully some respite on the South Shore next week in Nova Scotia will uh, will cool things off. So, Fantastic. Well, thanks. And so that it, that that does it for the listener mail this week. Other than um, I have to figure out how to disable the notifications for Reddit, um, and uh, and hopefully we don't continue to get lewd uh, social uh, advertisements from from Gmail. I'm not sure why that suggestion is coming through. That, that does seem odd. I mean, the uh, it's probably because we uh, we used profanity in that one episode. Got to bleep it out, and we've been we've been branded as a, <laughs> a somewhat uh, somewhat blue program. Yeah, yeah. podcast. It's not safe for work. No, we are we are definitely uh, SFW, um, except for the one that uh, that you weren't on. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, so I think we're gonna um, I'm, I'm gonna occupy the interviewer's chair here. Oh, well, I actually have a question uh, for both of you before we start this. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Don't get too comfortable. Um, but what was your first field school, Ken? 
Uh, my first field school was in Belize. So I, uh, Man Allison University, uh, uh, in collaboration with UNB, used to offer a field school uh, at, in La Milpa, which is in northwestern Belize. Um, you're down there for a few weeks uh, doing excavation work on a, on a Maya site. Uh, then you get to visit some interesting, get to go to Tikal in Guatemala. That's actually for the, for the uh, intrepid listener, that's actually where they filmed uh, a scene from Star Wars A New Hope. Um, and uh, I, cr- I recreated that scene actually on the same temple in Tikal. I brought a Millennium Falcon with me in my, in my luggage Wait, to really? ensure that I could film this. Uh, uh, and if I can find that video footage, um, I will share it on our social media here sometime in the in the coming weeks. So, okay, nice. um, but yeah, Steve really neat. Tried to sh- sell Arthur at the Army Navy store. There, someone was trying to sell Arthur a a, a replica of the Millennium Falcon. They were pretty a working convenient. one. Uh, we didn't like. So is so is this? It just came up to you with a. Sorry, what was that, Arthur? It was a pretty good deal, so probably not a working. Okay. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it no, was, it, it was neat. There was tarantulas and scorpions and, uh, and a jaguar hanging around the camp. And, and, uh, I had a, uh, a pretty crazy jungle fever actually, while I was down there, um, uh, hallucinated. And for about we just a day. said we're going to keep this safe for work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, but, uh, but pretty fun, pretty, pretty great experience actually. So, cool. um, but, uh, certainly more exotic than some places and, and it's probably the most exotic work that I've done. Yeah. Um, well, but, let me tell you, once our consulting business takes off, we're going to have a Jaguar parked around the campground ourselves. Um, there you go. What was uh, what was your first field school, Arthur? Um, my, my first field school was uh, on the Bremish Valley Archaeology Project through Durham University in uh, Northumberland, northern, northeastern England, uh, up in the Cheviot Hills. And it was it was great. Cool. Yeah. Was there a Jaguar? Not the cat. Just, yeah, yeah. Sort of gentleman farmers about it. Right. <laughs> Cool. Probably lots of cougars. Are we allowed to make that joke on the podcast? <laughs> yeah. After assuring me you were safe for work, yeah. Um, but okay, Ken, you can have you can and you can have this back now. I just I just thought it'd be be interesting to sort of do some, but field schools are game. They're important, right? They're a, a good way you learn how to do what we do. Yeah, and you your field school was uh, with Brian Robinson in Coastal Maine, right? My my second one was I had the horrifying realization this year that it's my fifteenth, fifteen years. That was fifteen years ago. So I've been going out to Washington County for fifteen years, um, and then but my first one was actually at a cool site called the Barton site in Western Maryland. Right on. At through Towson University with uh, Bob Wall. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so you guys uh, are the co-directors along with Matthew Betts uh, at the Canadian Museum of History of the, I believe it's called the Down East Maine Archaeology Field School, is, or is it the Northeast Archaeology Lab Field School? Okay, so we've we've jacked this up beyond any recognition now, but the the uh, the the program, <laughs> the, I think the super program that we're in is called the Northeastern Archaeological Survey. Is yeah. that right, Arthur? I would say that we comprise the Northeastern Archaeological Survey, and we run. Uh, the Down East Maine Coastal Archaeology Field School. I think that's right. That, that sounds good. So you get your umbrella package. Uh, you know, there's a, a rubric, a project, research project uh, uh, that has many tendrils and graduate students and and various different p- bits and pieces and field programs yeah, and, and t-shirts. But the- and what's and t-shirts and and actually very uh, for the listener uh, uh, who's familiar with with our swag. Um, these gentlemen have come up with with very unique 
hand-stitched uh, badges, actually, uh, uh, with uh, with even sea dragons on them. Uh, it's it's actually it's a pretty spectacular uh, logo, actually. So they're actually that's um, actually designed by Wally, who who's also uh, the the mastermind behind the bingo card. Yeah, yeah. So uh, kudos to Wally because those are uh, I've got mine proudly displayed actually outside of my lab at at University of Lethbridge. So oh, love to hear it. Uh, yeah. So um, and uh, and your guys, sorry, what was that, Arthur? It's been kind of a, a interesting two or three years to be expanding and formalizing an archaeological project, which I think is an important context for us having a fairly long discussion about what the name of it was. Yep. And, was that and, and thing that went around. Yeah, yeah. So so you guys uh, got this off the ground uh, about three years ago. Um, this is the or this is the fourth field season of SIP. Uh, third. Third. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this started in during the middle of COVID. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, you guys have a couple of different sites that you've been working on yourselves. Uh, and this is the second year of the field school. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And and for the listener, um, a field school is actually, I believe we talked about this with Bill um, way back when. But um, one of the, um, so a field school for, for the listeners, so if they're not familiar with it, is, is sort of essential and critical training for an archaeologist. And, and basically, it ends up usually being the first comprehensive educational experience you have in working in archaeology in the field. And so you're working on um, one of your professors or a supervisor's project um, uh, with a bunch of other students, usually maybe a couple of graduate students. It's usually an inter interdisciplinary project. Um, it's usually focused on excavation work. Um, and the aim of a field school is to teach you essential skills like how to survey, how to, you know, put in a unit, uh, how to excavate stratigraphically. You've learned all about this stuff in books. Um, and in most cases, students are usually in their third or fourth year of undergrad. So you're sort of a senior undergraduate student. Um, it's pretty rare to be a graduate student and not have any field school experience just because um, it would be very difficult to take on your own research unless you're doing sort of exclusively collections-based work without having a field school. Um, you'll learn how to use recording equipment, um, what it means to distinguish between what a lot and a level is, for example, right? You know, how do you use a plumb bob? Um, do you leave it in the field with a bunch of shell that you haven't screened? Or do you collect it at the, uh, how to clean up your gear at the end of the day? Um, you learn about screen aperture and different uh, applications of whether or not you use quarter inch or six millimeter mesh, or do you use uh, three millimeter or eighth inch mesh in different contexts? And and so um, the, the challenge with field schools is that they often can be cost prohibitive. Um, and so usually what it means is that you're going to be registering for another semester of school. Um, in some cases, it requires um, getting either internal funding from the university to maybe help out with the offset the costs of the tuition uh, portion of it that you'll have to pay. But in the case, so I went to Belize, so I had a tuition fee. Um, I had uh, airplane tickets that I needed to purchase. The tuition fee covered um, room and board. Um, and it covered my travel once I landed in Belize, but I did need to purchase airline tickets. And so we're talking, you know, costs in the thousands of dollars. And I was lucky enough that I was able to get some money from the university, um, uh, applied for a scholarship to kind of help off offset those costs. But it was something, you know, I worked full time during my undergraduate or worked uh, a part time job, sorry, during my undergraduate degree. And so I was able to set aside money to help with that. But 
um, it's a real challenge because there are some students who don't have access to those sorts of scholarships and that just don't have the capacity to be able to work while they're in school. And, and something that you guys are actually have a forthcoming publication on here. Um, so uh, Gabe and Arthur, along with um, Margaret Mead and- uh, Mike Mead, Mike Mead. Mike Mead, Mike Mead. And, Margaret Mead um, is someone else entirely. Okay, so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Mike Mead. For years. Yeah, yeah, versions in Polynesia and all that sort of thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and EC Moore. Um, Eric uh, Moore, yeah, yeah. Eric Moore, okay. And so, and it's an article coming out in Advances in Archaeological Practice called Embedding Archaeologists in Field Schools. Um, and Embedding Librarians in Field Schools. Sorry, did I, did I type that wrong? Embedding Librarians in Field Schools. Uh, oh, the title that I have here is Embedding Archaeologists in Field Schools. Whoops. <laughs> so we should. Um, we were already which, embedded. Which, yeah. Which struck which struck me as an odd title for, uh, but I, you know, I wasn't. I thought it was maybe one of these reflexive, uh, reflexive uh, things, or you know, you're thinking about your your own role. Uh, no, that's, you know, it's expensive field school. You know what else? So we, we have an edit to make on our grant application, Gabe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you got that, and that's a little embarrassing because I was filling that out in the field. Uh, so. Um, so so but. But you guys are publishing on something that's very unique about your field school, and that is that you offer the field school uh, free of charge to your students. So, so I, I, due to my error, Ken, you're, you're, we're, we've conflated a few things. So. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> all I, right. I, will, I will walk that back. We are we are very fortunate to not charge students beyond tuition for our field school if they're UNB students, and that's through um, a very generous grant from Future NB through our Office of Experiential Learning. And one of the reasons that we have emphasized doing that is because, as you alluded to, archaeology field schools are often very expensive. Um, you know, and I was fortunate to have one that was covered by a Maine Academic um, Prominence Initiative grant to the University of Maine. But one of the problems with how expensive they are is that it's actually it's, it limits access to the discipline, right? So. We want a, a more diverse discipline. We want um, really anyone who's kind of interested in this career to be able to get at it. So we're, we feel really fortunate that um, UMB students don't have to pay the actual cost that would be to attend a field school. Um, Arthur, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, it, it's just important to keep things reasonably priced. And as you say, it's, it's an issue of, uh, of access. Um, and I think one of the things that we're finding increasingly is that um, even you know make them as free as you can it still means students taking three weeks four weeks off work to be able to attend yeah. the field school that you know which I don't think we can get a grant to pay them but um yeah. but but that's important so just really recognize the students are making sacrifices to be there um to do this thing that is essential training in the discipline and um I mean similar to Gabe I went to a, a field school yeah, it was you know, a million years ago in the UK but it was it was mandatory. It was required. It was the whole year of archaeology students being, you know, you had to be there. You had to do it. That was it. Um, and I think those experiences we had were really formative in terms of thinking about the accessibility of the discipline, um, which is necessary. It's important, you know, particularly um, going forward, building a responsive and inclusive archaeology. Yeah, I think so. And one of the things that you mentioned, Ken, was kind of the universality of um Field schools that they're they're one of the only shared undergraduate experiences that almost every professional archaeologist has had. Yep, um, and so therefore they're really important. Which is actually that transitions to the paper we wrote, which is not <laughs> called embedding archaeologists in field schools. It's certainly not called bedding archaeologists in field schools. Um, and what it is called is embedding librarians in archaeological field schools. 
Oh, this is this makes sense why Eric Moore would be on the paper then. Precisely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. And um, and so uh, what that paper is about is one of the things we do in the field school is we have a whole bunch of basically every other night is some kind of presentation or lecture or skills based or skill building exercise. And because uh, one of the things that archaeologists have to worry about is making sure that the data they generate in the field um, are, are well curated, that they're um, usable by other people in the future. Um, and, and one of the things that really librarians are good about is, is making sure that that happens. And so we partnered with um, our embedded librarian here at UNB, Eric Moore, and with our kind of all things digital guy here at UNB, Mike Mead, um, to, to work on actually both um, curating the data we generate in our field school and on really um, helping to teach the students different kinds of how data are generated, how data are curated. And in addition to that, just kind of teaching them some kind of nuts and bolts research skills, because the premise is, you know, look, if, if, you're, if you're taking this field school, there's a decent chance that you may be a future archaeologist, which means you're gonna have to do research and you're gonna generate data. So we have this one like kind of pinch point where we're pretty sure um, any graduate of our program that's going to go on to be an archaeologist will do a field school. They'll probably do one of ours. Um, so we wanna make sure these skills are shared. And so the paper is just about um, some of our experiences doing that. And the other thing that really came out of that um, initiative, which is ongoing, it's a lot of fun. I think I kind of jokingly sent you uh, Mike Mead made a 3D photogrammetry mock-up of us excavating. Yes. And so we sort of look like army men, uh, those like plastic army men. Uh, yep. Being. But plastic army men that have left too close to the radiator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit melty, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and the other part of that partnership has been that it helps to get the librarians to better understand the needs of archaeologists, right? Yeah. Um, so we've got archaeology experience. They have library data and digital experience. So um, one of the great things about a field school is that it's a it's probably about the most immersive kind of learning experience you can have. You're pretty much worried about archaeology all the time, right? It's the it's the one chance you really get to be constantly paying attention to archaeology. And so the librarians come out. You know, they live with us. Um, they work with us. They learn about what we do. We learn about what they do. And it's about that collaboration. And well, that makes uh, that paper makes a lot more sense that it's not co-written with Margaret Mead, and, uh, <laughs> and it's uh, uh, it, it doesn't have the the somewhat um, uh, embedding archaeologists in field schools. I was trying to puzzle out what. Uh, <laughs> Been that for years. <laughs> yeah, sounded yeah. like a tag paper or something, you know, like uh, yeah. that. Uh, um that's, so we, but we should consider getting the librarians on actually for an issue too and doing and doing something about their paper maybe get the librarians and arthur on um and that would actually be fantastic and and uh and actually it would be really great too um we have a we have a really excellent subject librarian here at university of lethbridge uh reese stevens who uh who's helped us oh, cool. immensely with uh building he's created uh a few um, like research guides for students for North American archaeology. He and I are going to be compiling one together for a couple of courses that I'm going to be teaching. Um, and, uh, and and I think it's actually very important to uh, to tap into those sorts of resources. Uh, and, and in particular, like you said about um, data management and databasing and that sort of thing. Like we've got some experts in our in our library uh, that are you know know how to do 
uh, bibliometrics and use EndNote properly? And and uh, how do you, how do you manage this sort of data flow? And and uh, how do you manage it long term? As as somebody who is guilty of having um, a lot of Excel spreadsheets that don't talk to each other, um, and is trying to figure out how to make those coherent and work in a database format. Um, that you know, these are kind of essential skills that, unfortunately, I don't I don't feel like we get a ton of formal training in um, in uh, in uh, a lot of undergraduate programs. So, and I think one of the things that um, we've been most impressed by in working with the librarians, um, or that's been kind of exciting about working with the librarians, is that we this stuff is so vital. It's stuff we'd be trying to do and make up as we go along anyway, um, yeah. and and actually accessing real professionals, right? Um, so we're thinking about digital archiving. Um, we'd be figuring that out on our own, but um, we feel much better prepared to be producing something that's actually going to last, much more confident in that um, because we've been working with Eric. Um, everybody's 3D scanning everything these days all the time, um, but we would be frankly producing a lot of pretty janky models on our phones with no real idea what to do with them. Um, and working with Mike means that I think we are more we have a lot more potential, a lot more capacity um, to build these archives in a way that will last, in a way that will be useful. We can kind of hit the ground running. So it's just that that interfacing with other professionals as well. Um, it makes and there's all sorts of yeah, and there's all sorts of kind of like uh, uh, sort of IP issues too when it comes to stuff like uh, these 3D model programs. Like some of the free software, you don't realize you actually lose control. Like you don't mm -hmm. actually have copyright control over some of this stuff. And you know, who knows? You could end up having that picture of you guys like. Uh, uh, you know, Sketchfab uh, distributes it as a promotional poster or something uh, without your knowledge at some uh, some trade fair. So, um, so yeah. So on top of it being a uh, free field school, you guys, um, this is also a community engaged project, and you guys are working collaboratively with the uh, Passamaquoddy Tribal Historic Preservation Office. Um, and so, can you talk a little bit about the Tipo, um, what their role is? And uh, and who your partners are among the indigenous community in in coastal Maine? Sure, yeah. So that's actually been one of the the things I think that's most exciting for us about this project. And in some of the interviews that we've uh, prepared in the field, um, there's going to be mention of of those engagements as well. Ken hasn't heard those interviews yet because I haven't sent them to him. Um, <laughs> and uh, but we've been really fortunate um, in Maine. There's, uh, or in the United States, there's an office um, that indigenous communities have called the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, and that is the basically the tribal equivalent to a state historic preservation officer, which is probably the closest thing um, that exists that in Canada. It would be something like the Ark Services branch here in yeah, yeah, like a provincial archaeologist is is in some ways equivalent to a shippo. Yes, exactly. And it, it, the major difference, of course, being that, uh, as we talked about before, in the United States, uh, legislation is basically federal, or, or, or heritage legislation is basically federal, and it's kind of managed at the state level. Um, but so that's essentially kind of an equivalent office that the um, tribes have. And so um, in Maine, that includes things like NAGPRA, dealing with the Native American Graves um, Repatriation Act, Protection and Repatriation Act, um, dealing with routine cultural resource management, um, archaeology, and other kind of Section 106 um, type projects, and then also being essentially kind and, of and, a... Um, and for the listeners, Section 106 um, is the federal, basically, CRM trigger uh, that we'll we'll probably talk about. We'll actually probably talk about in detail in the next season when we talk about our CRM episode, when we kind of do a history of CRM uh, episode. Yep, absolutely. And so that's out of the 1960s uh, 
that that came into National the Historic Preservation Act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ken knows, Ken knows all. This. Ken teaches this, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ken teaches that I live it. Um, and uh, and um, uh, also though um, involved in all sorts of kind of educational initiatives, right? So the um, much like the State Historic Preservation Office in most states is concerned also with research um and with education that's also the case for the tribal historic preservation officer we're fortunate to uh in washington county uh Pasquati, um tribal historic preservation is donald uh Sakatoma, who is um has been doing it for a long time and is really an expert on um any number of cultural resource kind of questions ranging um uh, from history to archaeology to stories um there's also a vibrant language program down there so there's all sorts of stuff that we've been fortunate to tap in on as a resource to help us better understand the archaeology. We're really fortunate. Um, this year, we were invited to an exciting lecture series that um, Natalie Dana Lawler is heading up out at um, Township. And that this year, the one we took the students to, uh, we were generously, generously invited to was um, with uh, National Park Service talking about careers in archaeology. Um, we're fortunate to, um, we made a video for the Passamaquoddy um, Tribal Historic Preservation Office and Museum. And then um, Donald Saktoma um, very generally took us on tours of one of the most interesting sites in Maine, which is the petroglyph site at Machias Bay, Maine. It's the densest wow. concentration of pre-contact petroglyphs uh, on the East Coast. And also um, he and Natalie Dana and Don Sakama Jr. and uh, Cassie Dana took us to be on a, uh, took us and the students on a tour of the Tribal Museum, which is uh, amazing. Uh, and then in addition, we went to a uh, Jeremy Dutcher concert, which uh, is not a terrible way at all to spend an evening, I have to say. He's, he's from Tobik, um, Wabanaki uh, musician who I think I, I'm hazy on the timeline here, but I think became known for uh, songs which were he's a he's a classically trained piano and opera musician, and his songs uh, essentially exist in dialogue with early wax cylinder recordings. Yeah, yeah, he took uh, traditional Wallastogwig songs and and uh, and re envisioned them as as sort of these sort of beautiful operatic um, pieces that and yeah. and you get you get. Some of the recordings uh, on on the album version, at least, you you hear some of the traditional songs being uh, sung by uh, by community members. Yeah, and he actually does that um, live too uh, by by I think a Bluetooth speaker, but we're a little unsure on on how this works. But <laughs> it's really fantastic. It was, um, and I think one of the moving things for us. So it was in a small um, used to be a church in Eastport that's that's owned by the uh, the, the Tides Institute Museum. Um, and one of the, I think, moving points that, uh, that Hugh French, when he introduced the, the concert made was that as far as anyone knew, this might've been the first time that, um, a Wabanaki language was spoken in that church. And wow. Dwayne Toma gave a, um, a, a very good, uh, introduction to Passamaquoddy then followed by, um, in English kind of reemphasizing that point, introducing, uh, Jeremy Dutcher, and uh, the concert was just incredibly moving. But one of the the interesting things, so so from moving from that baseline of, of not having probably any indigenous languages ever having been spoken in that church to the um, 
what in many ways was a dialogue actually I think probably about a third of the audience uh, were Wabanaki many of them um, spoke uh, either Pasquale Malisi or um, or uh, or other Wabanaki languages and so there was essentially at some points kind of a dialogue in indigenous languages between Jeremy Dutcher sort of um, essentially joking around with people in the audience um, so incredibly moving. Many of our students were in tears, um, and I, certainly I think all of us felt quite emotional uh, and, and pretty thrilled to be there. So it was exciting as well. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. that, that uh, as you were telling me about that, I, you know, I, I could tell that that was uh, that would have been a kind of a once in a lifetime experience. You know, like that that is, uh, um, and and for the students, I think too, it would be incredibly important. I mean, you know, we were um, we were kind of in awe of just sort of the uh the conversational big mod that was going on at the caas this past year mm, and you right. know how great it was to hear community members and member two um just sort of con conversing in Mi'kmaq and, and hearing language being spoken by community members and and how important that is to uh community revitalization and everything like that and and uh um and it's just you know it's it's sort of um i think it's an essential part of i think for the students to hear that is also really important right like uh yeah. Um, uh, for those of you, uh, for the listener can't see this, but uh, Gabe, Gabe is trying to, uh, Gabe is currently in a house that I'm guessing is, is about, you know, 25 to 28 degrees Celsius plus humidity in Fredericton. Um, and, and his heat pump has broken. And, and that means that, uh, that as I, as I watch them get dewier by the minute, uh, yeah. that they keep glancing back, hoping that the thing will turn on. The heat pump uh, was fine when we got here. And as has become that we've we've only gained two degrees Fahrenheit, and we're hoping that it's not much more. Um, but but there's big red text that says <clears throat> suction over temp lockout. <laughs> I think at some point we're gonna turn it off and turn it back on and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, uh, you know we're 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 getting close to a half-empty bottle of Corvassier, um, but I think it would be remiss if I didn't ask you guys about the archaeology this year yeah. and uh, a little bit about the site. Um, maybe give some background about what you guys have found so far, um, what you guys found this year, and maybe what the highlight of the season was, um, apart from this fantastic evening with Jeremy Dutcher. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the archaeology was very good this year. It was very good last year. And so last year we were um, at, so essentially the, there are, depending on how you splice it, three or two sites on this one peninsula on a very dense archaeological landscape where there are lots of sites from pretty much the middle woodland to the protostoric period. Last year we worked on one area of a site called SIP-1. At that site, we identified a astounding number of ceramics, including two basically whole pot breaks. And what was interesting about that was in that area, um, which radiocarbon dated to the middle woodland, but the very end of the middle woodland, something like 1500 um, years ago on three radiocarbon dates, um, that there were all these ceramics and lots of tomcod bone but there were basically no lithics, which made Arthur very sad. And so, so just for the listener, what is imp like what is so significant about a whole pot break being in, in one kind of localized area? So they're incredibly rare um, in this region. So the as I told the students last year, um, each one of those pots represented more ceramic shirts than I'd excavated in my career. Yep. You know, in aggregate. 
Um, but it also suggests some amount of specialized activity in that area. Um, and the tomcod are interesting because they, uh, sometimes called frostfish in down east Maine, they suggest a, um, uh, a cold weather occupation uh, or use of that area. Um, and in, in fact, that's related to the Passamaquoddy place name um, for the area. So one of the reasons we were really uh, excited to find uh, a lot of tomcod otoliths and, and verts and things like that uh, is that in conversation with Donald Saktoma, um, he'd been really clear that, that there was a relationship between um, that place and the place name of tomcod. So the, the archaeological evidence for that is also a really nice part of the story. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you, you kind of hinted at, too, that uh, there were very few lithics found last year. So Arthur, uh, like myself, um, has, a, has a passion for stone tools um, and, uh, and all things stony. And, and so, uh, so you guys left the field last year um, excited by the presence of um, ceramics. Uh, and then this year, enticingly, found something a little bit different. Yeah, uh, and this year we were working on uh, another peninsula in the same area, uh, very close by the places we'd excavated previously. Um, and the majority of our work there was on a site that, that appears to be some sort of domestic area and um, has no ceramics whatsoever and a, a huge number of flakes. Um, I was really excited when we first started finding them because we'd had none previously. And then after a while, I was starting to think about counting and scrubbing all of them with a toothbrush and getting a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> um, but it was really exciting, and we had a couple great refits as well, which was um, really nice to see our sort of late stage biface snapped in half and found across a couple of units. Um, and it seemed to be a, a core gone wrong um, that was also present. So that tells us a lot about um, the level of disturbance in the site, which is really, really low. Um, so we have a, a pretty intact. Um, uh, so we would be careful about the terminology we use just coming out of the field, but um, if not a floor or a hearth or anything like that, some sort of um, domestic space where we're seeing um, lithic activity and, and for some reason no ceramics and that that could be uh, temporal um, or that could be uh, task specialization um, but we'll get some radiocarbon dates back and then have something more coherent to say about that I think yeah yeah and so uh, so Arthur mentioned refit and for the the, the uh, listener who's not familiar that's kind of in uh, you know Crossfitting artifacts, which uh, so artifacts which you find fragments of in different areas of your excavation. So usually we're excavating one meter units, um, and so occasionally what ends up happening is you you excavate in one unit, and then a, a colleague of yours, maybe a couple meters over, um, uh, is also excavating. You guys find a couple of pieces that uh, maybe are made on the same type of stone or have the same are kind of a same pottery type or uh, with the same kind of decoration. Uh, and you put those pieces together and they actually make one whole artifact. And what that can tell you is uh, the spatial distribution of those refits can actually tell you a little bit about um, uh, activity, activity areas. And, and uh, when artifacts cross men within the same stratigraphic unit, that usually gives you a much better confidence in an archaeological deposit about being intact and undisturbed. And what it, what it indicates is that, um, you know, say that, that biface broke during manufacture, um, and those two pieces ended up a couple meters apart could simply be a function of somebody cleaning up afterwards um, and that that was all sort of part of one event um, and and that event actually is is encased like sort of securely within that stratigraphic context yeah they're they're really they're moments in time um you know you could really even if it's just for a split second you could really reconstruct a very specific action very specific thing that happened in the past and that's always really cool yeah 
the uh, the O leap of uh, of uh, pre pre contact archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Ken, as you alluded to, we might be looking at uh, well, since Arthur's here, a three quarters finished bottle of Cuvassier. Yeah, and a couple of very tired looking gentlemen with uh, with uh, long beards uh, and uh, and and uh, sunken eyes here. That uh, uh, you guys have been in the field for four weeks, is it? A three and change, really. Three and change, and about um, to go back out for another another dappling. Yeah, um, and so I to... oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so so I I was going to say we'll 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 probably wrap up here, but I was going to see Gabe. Could you inter uh, introduce some of what the listener is going to hear uh, uh, as as we um, uh, have a swish that comes up here once we wrap. I can indeed. So, um, so the the one thing I wanted to also add was that um, we just were incredibly grateful. Also, the Maine Coast Heritage Trust, who are the who are the landowner uh, out, out out where we work, and um, we unfortunately uh, Ken will know that one of the things Ken and I were doing while I was in the field um, was trying to finish a shirt grant, and so as a result, my interviews are, are pressed to the end of the season, and so. I really should have gotten some of the folks at Maine Coast who who help us out with this. Um, in particular, um, Deirdre uh, Whitehead, who is like the one of the big kind of advocates for archaeology within that organization. She and uh, she's a fantastic ally um, to archaeologists down there, and really on all Maine Coast Heritage Trust properties. And also um, Kyle Cope, who um, who is the land steward there, and were tremendously helpful. So they, alas, are not going to get interviewed, even though they would have a tremendously useful perspective on this. The other thing that's going to be missing from that is um, we didn't get a long form interview with Matt. We meant to, and then a series of snags prevented that from happening. So we've just got a brief interview with Matt, um, <laughs> which is about maybe it might not even be a minute. Um, and, and that's unfortunately a loss. But, but what we think you're going to hear, assuming that the audio I took in the field works, is um, well, I mean, one of the things you'll hear is that I got some ambient sound. It's the equivalent of the kind of like classic um camera shot that's taken up through the screen i just you know the of the of the, of the archaeologist but the, the, oh, photo... yeah, the shaking uh yeah we've got a, we've got some sound of the shaking i think the listener uh, may have already heard that then what i'll do is i'll cut that and put it at the start of the episode yeah at this yeah i mean leave it everywhere i just sprinkle it on the stuff is uh maybe that's maybe that'll be the transition i'll cut it and i'll make it the transition between each uh, interview I think that's a great yeah. just constant background noise throughout the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, believe they call that. I believe they call that ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I'd add, and I'll try to make a point short and coherent, is that um, it's been fantastic working with Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Uh, and one of the real advantages of that, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot more land going into conservation uh, around New England. And that sort of means that archaeologists have bigger landscapes in which to work when we can really productively collaborate with um, land trusts. That's like a lot easier than stuffing a lot of letters into a lot of landowners' uh, mailboxes and trying to sort of figure out that patchwork. One of the things that's exciting about the sites we're working at at SIP Bay is that it's a lot of sites and a lot of activity over a landscape, right? And uh, in particular, um, you know, collaborating with the Passamaquoddy, um, looking at that landscape and looking at that persistence and that reuse and that special place that, that even when archaeology is invoked, too often um, indigenous sites are sort of seen as dots on a map. Um, and that idea that it's a, a, a big landscape occupied over a long time and that this is, this is all their homeland. 
um, not just the specific places where archaeologists have worked, I think is really, um, really important. And working collaboratively with land trusts and large landowners and things like that really gives us a, a different view into archaeological landscapes and what we're even sort of trending towards calling a site complex than trying to figure out a patchwork of backyards. Yeah, so you raised a couple of good points there, Arthur. First is that um, for some reason people didn't live on centroids, um, which is uh, you know a, a peculiar uh, thing. You know, when you put a dot on a map, it, it's like that they did live. They lived right there. It's um, hard but, to believe, uh, though, because they did follow the predictive model so closely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, always within eighty meters. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you did raise another thing, Arthur, that I think would be really fantastic to actually have an, a a longer discussion about in a, in a future episode, and that is about the approach to conservation, heritage preservation, and the relationship between conservationists and archaeologists in the United States, um, and in particular in Maine versus that relationship that's that's in New Brunswick, and and that. Um, Maine is really a reflection of a, a very different system and a very different approach to heritage preservation, um, heritage legislation, regulation, and conservation, um, and, and sort of this sort of embracing of it and recognizing the utility and the importance of archaeology, um, whereas I think there has really just been sort of tension and um, acrimony in, in on the other side of the border. And, and what you're looking at, you guys are working with Passamaquoddy um, in Down East Maine. Um, well, well, they're their relations uh, are on the other side of the international border in Pescatamacati territory in, in the Quadi region in, in Canada. Um, and it would be a totally different context working there um, uh, because there's just not that same uh, kind of, uh, there's not that same kind of relationship between all of the different levels of government and between indigenous community members and uh, and so it's it's uh, uh, it, it's interesting to hear that, and it will be something to I think it'd be fun to unpackage and, and talk about in a in another in a future time when when uh, when Gabe is, is is not staring into the camera, uh, uh, wondering why I'm still talking. So no, no, I'm not. I'm not wondering, Ken. I, I, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, the laryngitis is gone, folks. I'm I'm back. That's, uh... <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm just here sipping a cuvassier and. <laughs> and and listener, I'm I'm very tired. I'm sorry. <laughs> cool. It's a lot, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, the other thing that they, that they're not going to hear um, is the folks of project from the Kafka Institute, who we did not interview, which we've been fortunate to stay for a long time, and we've done some work with their high school groups and so forth. Um, because one of the highlights, actually, of the kind of research that we do in working in the Northeast, um, unlike. Ken, unfortunately, who's uh, in Alberta, at least for now, but hopefully we'll get him back at some point, is that living about, you know, a tank of gas from where you do research is actually great because you are able to maintain engagements with the community, yep. the communities, really. I mean, the overlapping communities that exist uh, in Down East Maine, you know, meaning that you can you can engage with folks even, you know, in the off season or you can have these sort of ongoing relationships with people. So that's always fun. But but the listener is going to hear, we hope, unless I screwed this up, they're going to hear some sweet ambient noise. It's going to be fantastic. Um, yeah, we're not sure if we can do this one on vinyl yet, but I hope so. So they're going to get sweet ambient noise. Um, and then they're going to get a series of interviews, uh, mostly with our students. That's fantastic. Uh, they're going to be short interviews. And, um, you know, look, listener, it's, it's uh, at least partly my podcast. So when I asked the students what they liked about field school, you know, sure, I'm I'm leading them. I don't I don't mind saying that. But it, look, <laughs> half my podcast, 
partly my field school. So that's what we did. I assured them they could say something negative if they wanted, but I told them that Ken might edit it out. Um, yeah. But I, I, think it was, I think it was all pretty genuine. I hope so. Um, there's a few other questions in there. Um, and, uh, and that's pretty much what you're, what you're going to hear. And then you're going to hear a conversation uh, potentially between uh, me and Arthur. A couple conversations. We'll see. We'll see how those um, how those uh, work. Um, sometimes sitting in the field, at least one evening sitting um, at the Copsky Institute, and you're gonna hear a conversation. Uh, it's about I don't know, maybe a minute with me and Matt Betts, and that's what you're gonna hear. We think it's fantastic, and uh, and hopefully I have the editing skills to piece that all together into a coherent uh, coherent episode. So. Uh, listener, I think we are going to uh, bid you adieu uh, for at least a few weeks here. Um, I think we will be picking up here. So it is July 26th today as we record. Um, I don't know if we will speak to you in August, um, but if we do, it may be a brief hello, uh, an update on things. Uh, we might record a, a celebratory uh, or or a, or a lament uh, on August 30th after I finish uh uh, my sort of, uh, uh, important activity that day. Um, and, um, and Gabe and Arthur, uh, safety to you in the field. Um, happy to see you gentlemen have made it out of one field program and are, and are jumping into the next and, and, uh, wishing you, you the best and looking forward to And it's me. I've, I've always thought I wanted to drop off one rental that's paid for by the university, pick up another rental that's paid for by a client and head right back out. So, <laughs> Living the dream. Um, and so listener, uh, we uh, have a great night. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, thank you for uh, being here all through the last, uh, I, I guess it's six months now, seven months. It's been six months. And actually, I want to do a quick, um, just a, a little uh, kind of generalized shout out here that um, it was really nice being in Downey Spain and meeting and, and hearing from some folks that I've known down there who actually are listeners. Um, thank you. It, that's that's really really lovely uh, to hear, and we appreciate um, getting to talk to you in this way, even when we're we're not there in person. And and keep up the correspondence because we now have the uh, uh, the second generation of of stickers has been printed, um, and uh, so those of you who are holding on to um, the uh, collector's item that is the first run, the first edition sticker, um, there is now a second edition sticker. Uh, and, uh, and we hope to have more swag coming out over the coming months and, and, uh, and hopefully in late September, maybe October, we have some exciting, well, we may have some exciting news about the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast. Um, but, uh, but until then, uh, we will talk to you when we talk to you next, um, and, uh, stay safe, uh, stay cool and, uh, enjoy your various long weekends and, uh, the rest of your, the dog days of summer. Thanks very much, listener. And we um, will get to you, get back to you just as soon as we can. And until then, enjoy summer. So I'm sitting here with Arthur Anderson, one of the co-PIs on the Down East Maine Coastal Archaeology Field School. How are you, Arthur? I'm well, Gabe. How are you? Good. What's been your season highlight so far? It's uh, it's hard to it's hard to pick a season highlight, but. Um... I think as uh, as the lithic specialist, uh, finding stone tools or finding more than one flake uh, has has really inspired me for the coming season. That's great because last season we had one of those seasons where we had I don't know six hundred shards yeah, of pottery. More pottery than we've excavated in our lifetimes in one flake. Fantastic. 
Any low points you want to share? Not that I want to share, Gabe. Fantastic. Thanks, Arthur. All right. I'm sitting here with Matt Betts, one of the co-PIs on the Down East Maine Coastal Archaeology Field School. How are you, Matt? Good. How are you? Very well, thanks. And what's been the highlight of field school for you so far? Um, for me, it's the ability that the students have had to interact with the community through Donald and his team uh, and the other community members. Um, there's few projects I've been on that have had this level of community engagement and um, it's really important for the students to see that and engage with the community. Um, it's part, an important part of their training and I, it's always the highlight for me in these projects. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's Donald Sactoma and then uh, we had a meaningful visit, uh, not visit, but a concert, Jeremy Dutcher concert right. at uh, the uh, uh, Tides North Church in uh, Eastport. So all sorts of connections to various living communities. What's been the low point for you, Matt? There hasn't been many low points. We've had a wonderful season. Uh, good weather, great finds. Um, there's been a lack of fish, so that's a little bit of a low point for a zoo archaeologist, yep. but that's what the sites are. Well, they are what they are, and uh, we can't change them. We just yeah. dig them up. That's right. All right. Uh, thanks very much, Matt, and uh, looking forward to more season with you. Yeah, and to you as well. Sitting here with Julia Shabbat. She's one of the students from UNV on the Down East Maine Coastal Archaeology Field School. How are you, Julia? I'm good. Good. What's been a highlight for field school of field school for you? Um, I think the highlight has been when uh, last week Jacob, uh, my unit partner, found uh, the base of a biface, and we were joking around about uh, maybe if we found the tip it would be really cool. And then a few days later, I was cleaning up our walls and I actually found the tip, and we reunited the tip with the base in the lab. Um, and it was kind of cool because it was the first time they've been reunited in like however many years. Yeah, hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, Fantastic. if not thousands maybe. Cool. Um, yeah, that was a highlight. That's great. Any lowlights? Um, no is a perfectly okay no, answer. No, <laughs> no. Um, probably just kind of feeling a little worn down and sure. sick from working, but it's nothing you can't work through. <laughs> okay. And when you say sick from working, you mean nothing we've caused. You're just sick of working. Oh, yeah. Just, you know general like physical labor general physical labor good i just want to clarify that for the listener <laughs> well thank you very much julia and we uh will see you momentarily while you're going to be digging a shovel test pit i'm told right yes excellent okay. talk to you soon thank you i'm here with tim treen who's a unb undergraduate student on the coastal archaeology field school how are you tim i'm good you very well thank you what's been a highlight of field school so far for you this season uh, I'd say getting to find a flake scatter. It started off maybe like a week ago. I found one flake and then another flake and another flake. And just I'm a basic flint napper, and I knew right away that somebody was making a stone tool there. And I haven't really had that opportunity before to see like or like kind of interpret that somebody was doing something some uh, there. And it reminded me what um, D Donald Satoma can other Passamaquoddy peoples have been telling us here is that archaeology is a way to uh, connect to the past and although I'm not indigenous uh, it kind of gave me an idea of what of what of how that actually felt or how um, an indigenous person might feel to that of knowing that um, somebody was there somebody was doing this it, it was more of an emotional moment rather than like an analytical moment of looking at the flakes itself. Great! Anything you've liked about Downey's Maine in particular? 
Um, I love the weather. I grew up in Saskatchewan, so it's always nice to see the coast. I haven't really got that much coast time before, so living on the eastern seaboard, like right on the Atlantic Ocean, has been pretty nice for a month. That's great. Thanks very much, Tim. Thank you. So I'm here with Dawson Burnett. Um, if he finishes this field school successfully, he'll be a UNB alum. That's right. Uh, preemptive congratulations, Dawson. <laughs> and uh, Dawson, unlike many of our students, is a frequent flyer here. He was out here for a, uh, a uh, pandemic field season, out here for a field school, and now he's back. Um, what's been a highlight of this project for you, Dawson? I think the highlight for me was when we uncovered an anvil stone in context with some spirally cracked mammal bone. Fantastic. Which was also next to a chopper. Great. Brownstone. Great. Can, can you explain spirally fractured mammal bone for the listener? Right. Uh, spirally fractured mammal bone is what happens when you crush a mammal bone with rocks to extract marrow. Great. So the green bone and it's just the anatomy of the bone and the anatomy of the strike makes it have that, that funky spiral look to right, it. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and uh, what do you enjoy about Danny's Maine, if anything? You're, you're kind of from Bar Harbor. I'm not sure if this counts. Maybe yeah, it's an yeah. escape in the summer. <laughs> yeah, it's a little quieter up here than Bar Harbor, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, totally. I like the lobster dinner that we do. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. You, uh, so so t- tell the listeners a little bit about field life in general out here. Yeah, so if you do this field school, you stay in a very, very nice dorm. <laughs> you get a lobster dinner. You might go to a show if you're lucky. Yeah, we're not we're not paying him, listener. He's just he's he's <laughs> been here so often. He's got so just many good things. Just a happy customer. Exactly, just a happy repeat customer. And uh, and do you learn anything this season that you hadn't um, learned before? Yeah, I learned more about lithics and lithic sourcing, like the stuff that we're seeing from Nova Scotia, and there was some stuff from Mistassini, I believe. Excellent. Yeah, a little bit of uh, we think Mistassini uh, quartzite. Yeah. Great. Thanks very much, Dawson. Thank you. Looking forward to uh, the rest last few days of the season with Likewise. you. Likewise. All right, and um, good luck on graduation. Thanks. All right. <laughs> so I'm sitting here with Emily Drakeo, who is the second year, uh, this is her second year as a teaching assistant yes. for the Dennis Maine Coastal Archaeology Field School. <laughs> Emily is almost done her master's this in history true. at U of A. I understand that um, if your supervisor is listening, that yeah. you've been uh, you've been feverishly editing this every night. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cutting all the parts that need to be cut, beefing up the parts that need to be beefed up. Exactly. Great. What's been a highlight um, of this project for you, Emily? Uh, for me, this year, it's been definitely working with all the students and just seeing how excited they are about digging and archaeology. Um, they're all a lovely group and the units are super clean and just seeing them excited about all the lithics that we're getting has been really awesome. Excellent. It's been a good year for stone tools. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. Do you enjoy working in Dandy's Maine? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Cool. The site is fantastic. Being by the water is awesome. The Cops Cook Institute is also great. Excellent. And there's great company, so Thank great you. all around. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, of course, are very lucky to have Emily as our uh, TA. She in addition to being a valuable source of help in the field, she does things like make sure we don't leave students behind, yes. <laughs> runs the runs all of that sort of thing. And attendance is key. Attendance is key. <laughs> not leaving a student anywhere is key. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much for that, Emily, and uh, looking forward to working with you for the rest of the season. Yes, me too. Thank you. <laughs> Sitting here with Jacob Couture, who's a UNB undergraduate student, and this is your first field experience. Is that right, Jerry? It is, yeah. Excellent. What's been a highlight? Um, I know it was talked about earlier, but uh, finding uh, the biface half, or fragment that we found, that was basically the full body of it, and then uh, a couple days later, Julia finding the uh, tip of that biface uh, was pretty awesome for me, I think. 
Uh, yeah. Cool. And you mentioned last night that you've also been enjoying some of the community-engaged aspects that we uh, try to do on this project. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very. I, I found it very important to me as a person of indigenous descent to be able to come down here um, and experience certain cultural things that I uh, wouldn't usually do at at home and around uh, my home area. And uh, the community down here has just been so accepting and inviting for me. It, it's been very lovely to be down here. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Jacob. Thank you. All right, we're here with Dave McInnes, uh, second year doing? volunteer on the project. Doing well, Dave, how are you? Good, good, right, good. And we've been lucky to have Dave. He also, in addition to volunteering on the project, uh, does our lecture on radiocarbon dates and on population dynamics, which is a real treat. So thanks very much for doing that. What's been a highlight of the project for you so far? Oh, I think very, the, the students are great, of course. Yes, and, the students but, are but, but I also got to mention that the concert we went to last night. Oh, yes. It was probably one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, could you tell the listener what, what concert that was and why oh, you put it so moving? Jeremy uh, Dutcher. Dutcher, yeah, that's yeah. it. Um, it was a, a concert in Eastport. Uh, Jeremy is uh, uh, Maliseet and uh, a fantastic singer and piano player. And he's integrated uh, traditional songs uh, into a classic, uh, classical musical framework. And it was just one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. Yeah, very, really enjoyable, really powerful singer. Um, and we should also encourage the listener to, we've mentioned you on the podcast before because of your oh. population dynamics work. Right. And so um, could you tell us just a little bit about that? Well, I do. I, I estimate population dynamics back, you know, uh, since the last ice age um, because I'm interested in the, the interaction of population dynamics and technological change. Uh, and uh, climate change to understand as a framework for understanding why things happened the way they did uh, in the pre-contact period. Awesome. And so the listeners should check out your paper in Archaeology of North America for more Certainly. on that. Certainly. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Dave, and thanks for joining us this season. Thank you. So I'm sitting here with Isaac Scott, who came back as a volunteer on this project. Uh, you were a field school student with us last year. And since then, you've gone on to have a summer job as a archaeology technician with Department of Transportation. Is that right? Yeah. Excellent. What sort of skills did you learn last year that you're finding useful? Um, I mean, pretty much all of it. Like, um, just having the experience and, like, being immersed sort of in this environment and in this sort of, like, way of thinking. I would be totally out of my depth at that job without sort of the experience here. And also, you know, making connections and sort of like networking thinking um learning how to even just dig like i obviously doing things a little bit differently at the job but that sort of foundation that we build here is like integral that's great is there some reason it didn't lead you to change your major in anthropology um <laughs> i'm just kidding you don't have to answer that <laughs> the, well uh we're very glad to have you back uh isaac any highlights of uh, your short visit with us uh, so far it's just great to be like back at this site like it's just really nice to be here fantastic great well it's nice to have you thanks very much isaac all right i'm here with kathy martin who is an alum of the field school who is visiting you were with us last season here and now you work for dti in new brunswick as yeah. an archaeologist is that right uh, as a field tech but field tech yes. in archaeology yes okay yeah. excellent and um what were some things that you learned on the uh project last year that helped you with that job yeah well aside from like things like artifact identification and uh technique and how to use different tools and stuff i think the biggest thing that i learned was um the importance of public archaeology and how to communicate to the public 
public the kind of work that we're doing in a way that's accessible for them and uh, you know demonstrates the importance and all that sort of stuff. That's great. Any yeah. advice for students who might be considering taking a field school? Um, I think it's really important, especially if you want a job in either CRM or archaeology or uh, something like that. I think it's important to get field experience before you throw yourself fully into it. Um, and I know a lot of jobs are looking for field experience and if you want permits and stuff like that, it's important too. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, any highlights for, you've only been here for two days this season on a bit of a weekend yeah. jaunt, but uh, any highlights of the weekend? Yeah, um, it's nice to find some lithics this year. Last year was a lot of faunal bone um, and some ceramics, so it's interesting to see the different uh, parts of the site and how they're starting to look. That's great. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming back. It's good to see you, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, here we are in a burst of bug spray, <laughs> just starts wafting across this site. Yep, yep. Uh, I was wondering if, if uh, we're engaged in, in uh, immersive pedagogy right now. We're sitting on a bucket watching our students work. Um, what would you, um, how would you describe the scene as if you were on radio right now? <laughs> well, we're looking out over this beautiful vista of uh, young students pushing forward the boundaries of science, learning as they go. Um, wondering what we're doing with this giant microphone sitting on these buckets. Um, we've got 13 and a half units open here. It's a lot of units. Uh, 13 would be bad luck, and uh, Gabe is a fan of the half unit. Yep. Um, Just one of the many ways we've become more Eastern on this project. <laughs> uh, we, it's uh, a shallow site. Very shallow. Uh, so, yeah, we're getting uh, maybe 20 or 30 centimeters down to um, some sort of subsoil here, so that's why we've been able to open 13 and a half yeah. uh, units with our crew here. For our, for, our, for our listeners who might be on their way to, uh, say, work in Vermont and Virgin's Clay, they should know it's not only shallow, it's also sandy. That's right. It's better than that site you're in a work truck going to. <laughs> it does screen pretty yeah. nicely. And we're near the end of the season here. We are near the end of the season, uh, which is why we've got so much open. And we're not terrified about backfilling it because it's not very deep. You know why else we're not terrified about backfilling it? That would be the 15 students. Yes, that would be yeah. the 15 students we are looking at <laughs> right now, <laughs> all of whom have gotten stronger over the last few weeks. <laughs> the, um, yes, physically, emotionally, archaeologically. Uh, all those things. All right. Um, well, thank you for painting that uh, picture in the, uh, in the listeners. It's a vivid tableau. Mind. It I'll, is a bit I'll of a This is my first. I'll never be a cricket commentator if I. You still, you still can. Yeah, it's yeah. working out for me. We they, didn't uh, describe the beautiful background. We didn't. It, is that what they call? That's what we call the outfield, right? Yeah. Or is there an outfield <laughs> in cricket? <laughs> Maybe not. Is there an infield? I'm yeah, not even sure. It's just a field. Just a field. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, listener, you'll be getting more um, of this scintillating commentary soon um, as I continue to create a series of short MP3s to send <laughs> back to uh, the home studio. To an increasingly baffled Ken Holyoke. Yeah, yes, exactly. Thank you, Professor. Well, Arthur, we're back at SIP. Sitting on the other side of the trench. You're holding the microphone this time. I am. It gives us a rustic air, which I appreciate. Yep, it's true. But the uh, one like thing about... Field correspondent. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. The, uh, the mosquitoes are not as bad here as they were in our lodgings last night. Not nearly? Not nearly, no. Um, the refreshments are not as good either, though. Um, so, uh, tell us a little bit. We, we went through some of what we think is going on at this site last night. Yeah. Uh, I, we've really uh, blasted through today to, uh, I think, get to the end of the digging uh, imminently here. Uh, and then we'll continue with some of our profiling. But I think um, one of the important things that we did last night with the students, which I thought was a really great exercise, was to get all our forms, go through them all, and then make a, a larger scale site map on the whiteboard using the information that the students have, and even start to map um, flake distributions across quads and things like that. 
And uh, I think that's made us more confident that we've hit um, part of, you know, some sort of living area that is uh, surrounded by uh, a shell heap deposit, maybe a sort of sort of single family shell heap, um, which is going to make it even more interesting to see what the radiocarbon dates come back for this because we haven't had a lot of diagnostic material culture. Um, so the lack of ceramics may in and of itself be somewhat diagnostic. Um, the uh, extremely satisfying uh, late stage biface uh, refit that's that quite we good to put together it's quite good and i i would certainly believe that is about to be corner notched in a really rather late wooden <laughs> style um so all of that speculative we'll see what the the radiocarbon date says but the fact that that this seems to be a um pretty intact living area small help shell heap site moose bone processing all that stuff um is pretty exciting and <laughs> being a little more confident in that when, they, when we were yesterday by kind of doing a quick run of some of the basic data with the students was also pretty good yeah so we're on a, a busy archaeological landscape um, and sort of to catch the listener up if they haven't heard about this site before where or this area before we're uh, ted stoddard and colleagues in the 1950s from the rubber desk peabody institute yep. came out did some survey um ted was working on a dissertation at harford uh, ultimately, the dissertation was not completed. Uh, Ted is still around and has been uh, incredibly helpful, actually, yeah. on our research out here, though. So it's really wonderful to talk to. And uh, we are, in many ways, kind of following in the footsteps of the stuff Ted was doing out here, visiting a lot of hit sites he looked at. And I would, I would say, in most ways. In most yeah, ways. Yeah, we, and, and sometimes <laughs> literally. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're on here as a, it's a couple of peninsulas and um, a couple of adjacent peninsulas. One of them was a, a campground, actually, in Ted's day. Uh, and he certainly... Um, acquired a lot of uh, pieces from that peninsula that collectors had found as well as doing some test pits. Um, we were over on the adjacent peninsula where uh, the site we're on now was known from a single artifact that Ted found from the intertidal but that single artifact was I think the biggest ads I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and uh, we've done a, a couple of test units in here couldn't really make sense of it and um, yeah, blowing open, I think, 12 units here in front of us uh, really helps that. Uh, it certainly <laughs> does. Yeah, certainly does. Uh, and I guess we should, um, as we're wrapping up here, uh, we should maybe do a little just kind of recap on the field school, kind of what we do out here. And so it's a collaborative training program, training research program. It's uh, Arthur's at the University of New England. I'm at University of New Brunswick. Matt Betts is an adjunct at UNB, but also at Canadian Museum of History. He's sort of our... Uh, the sort of the trifecta of folks that uh, teach this pretty much every day. And then, so we excavate uh, during the day. We're an RPA4 certified field school. Um, we do a competency-based experiential training program. So students complete um, a series of competencies that we think uh, help prepare them for CRM, graduate school, uh, allied disciplines, or uh, just form an interesting learning experience. Yeah, we, we like to think it's pretty comprehensive, and I think that's um, kind of a combination of the experience that um, you and me and Matt have experience in academic archaeology, research work, CRM, um, in you know many many parts of the Northern Hemisphere, um, just bringing that together and making sure that students are coming out of here um, able to do some analysis, able to dig a test pit, as well as digging a, a field school unit. That's right. Thing, so. Yeah. Um, and, and we've... Uh, Students seem to agree with us so far, at least been polite enough to. Um, so that's one of the things that makes it exciting. Um, and I think particularly as we work on a lot of conserved and public land, um, the aspect of dealing with the public, you know, doing doing archaeology sort of respectfully and openly in public, engaging with people, um, that's also a focus as well. Great. And so in addition to the experiential aspect in the field, 
about every other night or maybe two out of three nights we'll have some sort of lecture or uh, lab activity designed to add some additional training to this and so uh, faculty for that this year include we had uh, well we've, we should say we start with an online component beforehand that included um, anti-sexual harassment training with Jerrica Hines out of the group at Feist um, field safety with Nadine Byers out of Amoskeg uh, Health Center uh, who was my, my partner as the listener might know and full disclosure game. yes yes uh, and then we had Madeline McLeister on uh, botanicals yep. Dartmouth College Dartmouth College uh, Matt Betts does zoo arg for us as well as being the kind of regular teacher you do lithics uh, we do culture historical overview um, we we do a lot of visits with the Tribal Historic Preservation Office this year we're fortunate enough to do a petroglyph tour which is always very good yeah uh, see some of the, the amazing ancient petroglyphs up here but also i mean we've been um, just flat out lucky to be able to take advantage of um, some other programming put on by uh, the tribe and groups in eastport so everything from a lecture from the national park service to a jeremy dutcher concert yes um so we think we, we spend the uh, you know spread the, across the gamut absolutely yeah um oh and of course we had dave mckinnis on population dynamics who you'll hear from at some point yeah, else in yeah, the show and um we're very fortunate. We stay at the Cobbs Cook Institute, which is great, being community engaged uh, in that way as well. And we also uh, really are fortunate to work with Mancos Heritage Trust, mm-hmm. who uh, are always great supporters of archaeology. So in particular, uh, I think Deirdre Whitehead's been a real um, advocate for archaeology. Yeah, She's the Wabanaki Tribal uh, Liaison with Mancos Heritage Trust. And before she was in that position, uh, this uh, particular place we're working at Sipay was, was on her patch, and uh, yep. she was really helpful and welcoming with us. Absolutely. So um, I guess we should uh, probably go back to work. <sighs> All right. <laughs> More soon, Professor. Yulia Vuya, yeah. who uh, is uh, ordinarily a student at University of Toronto, mm-hmm. but is one of our field school students here in Dundee, Spain this season. How are you? I'm good. Good. Uh, what's been a highlight of the field school for you? Uh, I have a joking answer and a serious answer. The uh, joking answer is hearing you say, um, let's get to a good stopping point at every lunch and end of the day. Uh, okay, good, good, good. That's been a, a huge highlight. Um, and the real answer is, like I was saying earlier, I really feel like within these three weeks, I've learned more about archaeology in a sense than I have in like the past few years I've been in school. Oh, wow, great. And I think it has to do with like actually holding, being able to hold artifacts, being able to like get them from from the point at which they're in the ground to the point at which we're cataloging them, um, having a real appreciation for raw data. Um, it's very different when you're working with a spreadsheet. <laughs> totally, yeah. uh, Which I've done before. Like, I, I never had an interest in zoo archaeology until I actually got to see bone and I got to see how it was spirally fractured and gnawed and all that stuff. Um, I've only ever done MNI counts with spreadsheets that are way too long. So, <laughs> um, and yeah, everything, everything from, like, the lithics that we did and the special, like, the, the guest guest stars that have <laughs> come in and out of the of the institute it's been like a really good experience i think and a really Great. holistic experience yeah oh, i I'm thrilled to hear that yeah Is recommend it, it excellent i'd love to hear that too. <laughs> um any uh any lowlights uh yes only one working on the edge of an ex- like uh, an erosion <laughs> a scarf yes. and feeling like my spine is twisted into a question mark Uh-oh. <laughs> uh so i would recommend definitely that more students come out and dig in these sites before they 
get destroyed because it's also uncomfortable to, to dig them <laughs> once they're starting to erode. I guess that's true, yeah. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> was this your first time in this part of Maine? Yes, it was actually. Um, and it was my first time on the East Coast in general. Oh, like, neat. So I've, I've never been to the East Coast in Canada or in the u.s so i'm very uh well actually that's not true i went to north carolina but okay. I, I, feel like, carolina. I feel like north carolina and maine are two very different like yes i think yeah. they are yeah, yeah that's true but, <laughs> but other than that. yeah no it was fantastic and i and i also think something really great about this field school um is the community engagement i've i feel like that was so special and so important for students who are interested in doing archaeology in north america um you know, we talk about it a lot in class and we talk about it all the time in archaeological ethics and lectures, but there's a very big difference between talking about like, we need to decolonize archaeology and then actually seeing what it means to engage with community members, what it means to engage with the Passamaquoddy tribe um, and listen to what their interests are. And it was just like fantastic. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Julia. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us all the way from Toronto. Yeah. The from, from a foreign land. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. <laughs>